Our scripture this evening will be from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is on page 1196, 1196. And we'll read the entire chapter. Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man, that you remember him? Or the son of man, that you are concerned about him? You have made him him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies And those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation, if you can imagine with me and think with me of a church in the time of which we have read. In in uh, Asia Minor, as it was called. Again, no idea what church it was. But very certainly it was the case that there was a church in these times. And like most of the churches in the New Testament, it was composed of a mixture of Christians who had come from a Gentile background and those who had come from a Jewish background. 
Now that's critical to remember, actually, that uh, interplay between those two groups is all over almost every page of the New Testament. Some Christians had come to Christ from a Gentile background. They knew nothing of the law. They had not been raised with the Torah. They didn't understand sacrifices and all that Jewish law. They didn't understand Sabbath. They didn't understand circumcision. They didn't understand clean and unclean foods. On the other hand, you had the Jews, or the Christians who came from a Jewish background. And these Christians, of course, continued to observe many of these Jewish ordinances because they had been raised with them. And that was their life. And just because they came to believe in Christ, they didn't necessarily give up all that stuff. They certainly invested it with a new meaning. Very true. But they did not stop practicing all those things. And now you can imagine that those Christians, and now let's leave the Gentile Christians uh, aside for a moment, and focus on these Christians who came from a Jewish background, that they're being tugged in two directions, aren't they? Because on the one hand, you have the Christians and the church and the leadership of the church encouraging them to stay true to Christ. That Christ is the fulfillment of all what took place in the Old Testament. That all those types and all those forms and all those practices, all the ritual, finds its fulfillment in Christ. But on the other hand, the Jews, and oh, you can imagine how strong this must have been for them. The Jewish people, in other words, the Jewish people who still were Jews, religious Jews, had not come to believe in Christ. They exerted tremendous pressure on their brethren who had gone over to Christ to return to Judaism. Now some of you who have uh, been raised in a different religion, maybe even a, a, maybe raised in Christianity, but a different denomination, and you came to see things more clearly, can, can, can sympathize in, in a small way, perhaps, with just how strong that pressure is to return to the fold, right? to return to the truth as you were taught, to return to the church in which you were raised, the church of your father and your mother, your grandfather and your grandmother. How strong a pressure that exerted on these Jewish Christians. And congregation, the truth of the matter is, some of them had begun to waver. Again, if, you could, if I could take you through the doors of this church, there you would see Jewish Christians. But they were, they were wavering. They were feeling that pressure to return. In fact, some of them had already taken action. And that's why I take you to Hebrews 10 and verse 25. Because we read in Hebrews 10 verse 25 that the author of this book writes, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Well, you see that already some Jewish Christians had begun to pull out, hadn't they? They, they, they no longer were attending the religious services. Their, their wavering had become had come to such a point that they had stopped coming to the worship services. Ah, your heart goes out to these people, don't you? I think especially uh, those of you who may have experienced something of this in your life uh, and, and the, how strong that pull is. But now this author, and again, I'd love to go into detail on this, but I really believe that the author of Hebrews is Apollos. And again, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about that, but I don't have time right now. But I really believe that the author of Hebrews is Apollos. And, that, uh, and, that, and whoever it may have been, now this man takes up his pen and he writes to these Jewish Christians. And with a heart full of love and compassion for these people, he urges them, Jesus 
is better. And now that's, a, that, that's, a, that's what you could write over the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Stay true to what you learned from Christ. And again, if you just look at the, uh, the book of Hebrews in your Bible there, you can see the heading above chapter 3, Jesus, our high priest. Now again, that's not the Bible, right? That's, the translators put those headings in there, and that's very helpful. But it's not, it's not scripture, but it gives us a summary. Jesus is a better high priest because the Jews had come to revere Aaron as the high priest and those who descended from him. In the previous chapter, of chapter 1, in verse 4, you can see, look at Hebrews 1 and verse 4, having become as much better than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. The angels were very important to the Jewish people in their religion. And now the author says Jesus is better than the angels. So, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And really, a congregation, a dear friends, we have then uh, the author of Hebrews uh, presenting to these Jewish Christians, to this block of Jewish believers who were wavering. Some had even already pulled out of the church. Now the author of Hebrews comes with this message that Jesus is better. And really, in one way, it's very similar to the issue that we face this evening in our catechism. Because our catechism, the question and answer we hope to deal with, and again, you can see this at the top of my outline there, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? And in a sense, uh, our chapter is not addressing that question directly, but our, 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 really the whole book of Hebrews is addressing that question, who is the mediator? Who is the mediator? Is it Moses? Is it Aaron? Is it Jesus? And the author of Hebrews is bending his every persuasive skill to persuade these people that Christ is the mediator. Jesus is the mediator. He's the one that we need. He's the one that stands between a holy God on the one side and a guilty people on the other side and is the only one who can bring the two together. Who is the mediator? Now, the question that we have before us in the Catechism is why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Now, the chapter I, I chose here touches on that question. I don't say that it, it, it deals exactly with that question because in our chapter, the assumption is that Jesus is a man and in fact, that's part of the problem. Let me say something about that. To the Jewish people... Jesus was a man, and they, 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 they knew Jesus. They had heard of him. Many of them had probably seen him. But he was a man. And he really wasn't a man that inspired the idea of a Messiah king. In fact, Jesus died on a shameful cross. And his cause was a lost cause. Jesus had come preaching a kingdom, but he failed. He didn't succeed in overcoming the Romans. He died on the cross. How can we look up to that man? And again, try to put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish Christians tonight. They're wavering. Should I? Is Jesus the mediator? Is Jesus the Savior? Or am I, have I just been wrong the whole time and I need to listen to my parents? I need to listen to my grandfather who's telling me, back to Moses. Moses is the mediator. You need to come back to the Jewish religion. That's the oldest religion. That's the religion of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. That's where you belong. Or 
These people over here who say that Jesus is the mediator, but Jesus died on a cross. I can't believe in him. How can, how, I know they say Jesus rose again from the dead, but, you know, they, they, and again, you can see all these people would waver, can you? And the constant agony, torture in their minds as they try to discern. And now the author of the book of Hebrews, he wants to give, he wants to show them why is it that Jesus died? This is the Jewish objection as I have it in my outline there. Jesus died on a cross. He died as a lost cause. He was a good man. He had, a, he had good ideas and, and, and he meant well perhaps, but he clearly wasn't the mediator. Well, now our author is going to step up and deal with that objection. And again, congregation, one of the difficulties of the book of Hebrews is that the author, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't argue or, or uh, speak or write like we would like, like we're used to in, in a line, right? Building evidence this way. But he, he kind of goes in circles. He, he states one thing and then he leaves it and then he comes back to it and then he states it and he, he comes back to it again. So uh, really I would encourage you to have your Bible open and I just want to work through these verses with you. As I studied this, I finally concluded that the best way for me to tackle this is just to go verse by verse through this and to try to help you understand this. So again, with that objection in our mind, I can't believe in Jesus. He died on a cross. But now in verse 9, the, the author of this letter says, but we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. Now, congregation, here we have connected these two things. That by suffering, he was crowned with glory and honor. Now, that can't be. In a Jewish mind, and maybe in your mind tonight, suffering is not the way to get crowned with glory and honor. A crown is a sign of victory, a sign of conquest. And you don't get there by suffering. Suffering is a sign of weakness. Dying on a cross is a shameful, a bitterly shameful thing in the Roman days. And yet, our author now tells us, because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. Now we want to know more about that. And thankfully our author is not going to leave that point, he's going to come back. But notice that he says it even involved tasting death. It wasn't just suffering, right? It wasn't just suffering. I guess you could actually say that, that suffering could lead to crown, glory and honor, right? If you, you suffered through something, but you, you succeeded, you overcame it, you conquered it, and now you're crowned with glory and honor. But no, Jesus tasted death. And the apostle tells us that that worked out for people's advantage. He tasted death for, and that key word for there. It was a positive thing. It was good. Well, we continue into verse 10. For it was fitting for him. Now the him here is God the Father. For it was fitting for him, that is God the Father, for whom or, or from whom are all things and through whom or to whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Now there is God the Father's goal. That is his objective, as I may say it. To bring many sons to glory. And to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So God the Father aims to bring many sons to glory. How is he going to do that? He is going to appoint over them a savior, a leader. Someone who will execute on his plan. God aims to bring them to glory. 
And Jesus is now appointed to be their leader, to bring them out of that, and to bring them into God's house, you might say. Jesus is, he has that mandate, if I can use that language. But notice how it says that God the Father will perfect the author of their salvation. There's something lacking there. The author of their salvation needs to be perfected. He needs something additional. Now again, that raises a question in our minds. How was, how was the author of their salvation, who of course is Jesus as the mediator, how, how did he need to be perfected? What was lacking? Well again, we have to kind of tuck that thought in the back of our mind and, and continue because the apostle goes to another thought here in verse 11. Right? He says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Well, this is a new thought, isn't it? That now Jesus, who sanctifies his people, and God's people, we who are being sanctified, we all have one Father, and that is God the Father. God the Father, who is bringing many sons to glory, is the Father, both of Jesus, the Mediator, and of his people, the one who sanctifies and the one who is being sanctified. And therefore, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. That Jesus, he calls us brothers. Well, now that gives us a little more of a clue, isn't it? That as God the Father seeks to bring many sons to glory, he's appointed Jesus to be their leader, but now it's necessary that Jesus become one of them. Jesus needs to be able to call them brothers so that he can sanctify them and bring them into God's house. That is the mandate, that is the commission, if I can say, that God the Father has given to His Son. Now, stay with me here. I know this is a bit uh, technical, but as we continue now into verse, uh, into verse 12 and 13, we have these verses that now the Apostle brings from the Old Testament to prove that Jesus called His people brothers. Right? So he goes to the Old Testament. The first one is very easy. He, I believe this comes from the Psalms. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. That's the key word there. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So uh, the author quotes that psalm to show that Jesus called the members of the congregation, his people, brethren. The second one is a bit more difficult in verse 13. This comes from Isaiah, I believe chapter 8. And again, I will put my trust in him... And again, behold, I and the children whom God, have given, whom God has given me. How does, that, how does that show us that Jesus called his people brothers? Well, it's I will put my trust in him, that is Jesus, will put my trust in God the Father. And again, behold, I, that is Jesus, and the children whom God has given me will put their trust in him. Again, if I can paraphrase that. Again, I will put my trust, I, Jesus, will put my trust in God the Father and all those who are children, my brothers and sisters, whom God has given me, will also put their trust in Him. Do you follow me there? That's how that works. So, again, for the author, that is a, a, pre, a text showing that Jesus calls His people brothers. And we come now to verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, and that simply means that his children, these many sons that he's leading to glory, have flesh and blood. They have a human nature. He, that is Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same. In other words, he also took a human nature. 
And now we have the answer to the question that lies at the t- ahead of the sermon, why the mediator must be human. The question also of our catechism, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? And it's given us here, right, that Jesus partook of the same human nature, that or in order that, through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So here, congregation, we learn that Jesus became flesh and blood. He became a human in order to neutralize, you might say, or to divest the devil of his most powerful weapon, the weapon that he clubs the people of God with day and night sometimes, to such an extent that in verse 15, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives, that these people were under bondage because Satan clubbed them constantly with this terror and fear of dying. But now Jesus comes and he enters into our world and he takes on a human nature. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Why did Jesus become human? Congregation, very simply, so that he could die. That's that's the simple answer to the question. Why Christmas? Right? Why the incarnation? Why did Jesus become flesh? So that he could die. Right? And our catechism says God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin. And Jesus became the mediator who paid for sin. And we know that the penalty of sin is death. So verse 14 really answers our question then, doesn't it? But it also answers the question, dear friends, of back to verse 10 where it talked about how, where it talked about how the author of their salvation need to be perfected. Was there something deficient in Jesus? Was there something lacking in him? And no, we would not say that there was anything lacking in Jesus. But in verse 14, we learn that the people, these sons, whom God the Father has commanded him to bring to glory, are under the curse. Now, where did we hear that, right? We heard that in a previous Lord's Day, right? That all humankind are under the curse. You can't take the sons who are under a curse and bring them into God's house. That can't be. They can't come into God's house. God's house is holy. And you can't take those who are under God's curse and deserving of eternal death and bring them into God's house. And so the author of their, or the, the leader, the, 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 the uh, author of their salvation, in that sense, he needed to be perfected. Not because there was anything lacking in himself, but because there was something that needed to be resolved in these sons and daughters whom he's going to bring to glory. They're under the curse. They're, they're subject to death. The devil has the power of death. By the way, the devil has the power of death not because the devil can decide when people die. That's not the case. God has that in his hands. The devil has the power of death because he can use death to club the people of God with because they're under the curse. And they're subject to death. Eternal death. And the devil has the power now to beat them over the head with that. That you are going to die. You are going to be cursed. You are going to be thrown into the fires of hell forever. And he can beat them with that. And it's true. The devil doesn't lie. Now, the devil's a liar from the beginning, but in, in this case, he tells the truth, doesn't he? 
that when he comes to people and tells them and beats them with it, you should be terrified of death. You should be terrified as a sinner you're under the curse. And God's wrath is about to break upon you. And that's the most powerful weapon the devil has. And now in these many sons that Jesus is leading to the Father's house, that needs to be resolved. Well, how can that be resolved? Well, by the leader of their salvation dying. He tastes death for them. And now again, if you can put yourself in the shoes of those Jewish people, they're wavering, they're tortured in their own minds. Should I stay true to Jesus? Or should I go back to the religion of my parents? My mother and my father raised me to know that the Jewish religion was all there was, was the only thing we needed. Maybe I should go back to that. How can I believe in a Savior who died? And now the author comes. He had to die. The leader of their salvation had to die because they were under the curse. And that's how God perfected the leader, the Savior, the author of their salvation by bringing him into the death of the cross. And far from that being a shame, far from that being a reason why we should not believe him, that is the very reason why we should believe him. That is the very reason why the curse is removed. And that club that the devil used to beat his people in, it's plucked out of his hand. That weapon that he uses to beat them with is neutralized. It's taken out of the picture. Because now the author of their salvation stands in their place. And he says, I took the death that they deserved. And all those people, and especially the Jewish people, subject to slavery all of their life. Well, no longer. They are set free from that bondage. And how? By someone dying. By the author of their salvation dying. I move now to verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. He's not a mediator for angels. But he's a mediator. He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. To you. And again, I, I want you to be like Jewish Christians tonight. And now the author says, he's a mediator for you. For, are you a descendant of Abraham? Ah, those people, they're wavering back and forth. And the very thought of Abraham makes them think, I should go back to Judaism. But now the author says to the descendants of Abraham, he is a mediator. And he tasted death for you. So that you can have that death and that curse removed. Well, what a wonder that is for those people to hear at congregation. To hear of what a help the Savior is. And He's a help to them, not by conquering, well, He did conquer, but by suffering and by tasting death. And you see how the author has completely switched that around. That from Jesus dying on a shameful death on the cross, far from that being a reason to, to not believe Him, it is the very reason why we should believe Him. Isn't that marvelous what the author has done there? And verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That is, like those sons that he's leading to glory. In all things, including in the fact that he, they, if they have a human nature, he has to have a human nature. So that he might become, and here's the reason, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so now we have another another. Uh, more information, as it were. Again, the author kind of circles back through this again. That the thing that was keeping these sons from being led to glory 
the thing that was keeping this high priest, nothing deficient in the high priest, but the fact that he was bringing a people to the house of God who had sin and guilt that needed to be resolved. They need a propitiation, and that propitiation, that's just a word, my dear friends, that means God's wrath has to be taken care of. It has to be satisfied. God doesn't just, okay, I'll overlook that. God doesn't pardon. Remember we talked about that. God doesn't pardon sin in that way. There has to be a propitiation. That high priest, that glorious high priest, he's a wonderful high priest, nothing lacking there. But that sin problem has to be resolved. And that's how the high priest is perfected through sufferings. He tastes death for every one of those people. And therefore the curse against them, the wrath of God is removed. And he is a propitiation for the sins of the people. Now congregation, one more verse as I try to round out what our catechism is teaching us. Because uh, you'll notice that our catechism says at the end there, but a sinner could never pay for others. And I just quickly uh, quote verse 17 of Hebrews. I mean, sorry, Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 and verse 26, right? Where it talks about the, whole, the high priest being holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, like the, like the regular Levitical high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins. Right? And there you see that's the teaching also of our catechism. That a person who has to sacrifice for his own sins cannot be a mediator. But Jesus has no sins of his own. He does not need, like those high priests, to offer up a sacrifice for his own sins. He's holy and innocent and undefiled. Uh, well, dear friends, so far then the teaching of that glorious chapter of Hebrews. Oh, you just wonder if those Jewish Christians, how they would have received this teaching. This, this, this teaching which so completely turns on its end their very reason for, for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least for, for leaning in that direction. And so that leads us to our first uh, application, my first point of application. What sort of a mediator do we need? And this was the question that the catechism gave us last week. But now the catechism is filling this out and saying, the mediator must be fully human. He must have a human nature. And it needs to be a sinless human nature. He must be one of us. And why? So that he can pay. The catechism says so that he can pay. The scripture says so that he can die. And really those are the same things. In fact, in the, in the book of in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4, you can see how vigorously the early church believed this truth. In 1 John 4, Verse 1, it says, Beloved, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And then in verse 3, he says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. And what's the, what's the truth? Oh, verse 2, I missed it. In verse 2, By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If you're not willing to confess that Jesus Christ became human, that is the spirit of Antichrist, says John. You see how, how strongly, how vigorously they, def they, they, they defended this idea that Jesus had to be human. There were those in the early church who said that, well, Jesus came to earth, but he only appeared to be human. No, says John. He had to be human so that he might die. 
and anything else is the spirit of the Antichrist. In our own, in our own chapter in verse 10, it says, it was fitting for him. In other words, it was necessary for him to be human, to have that body so that he could die. This is the sort of mediator congregation that God then provides for his people. And this is why it is so important that we insist that Jesus was human. Oh, that seems like such a... We learned that in Sunday school, right? A catechism class. And it just seems like a doctrine that really makes no difference. We confess it, but what, 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 is it really that important? And of course, we, we know that Jesus had to be human. But congregation, if Jesus is not human, then you're lost forever. That's how important this is. If Jesus is not human, if he does not have a body, then he cannot die. And if he cannot die, then he cannot pay for sin. That's how critical a doctrine this is. Your eternal destiny is staked on the fact that Jesus was human. I move to the second place, congregation. See what a thing sin is. This also is given to us in this Lord's Day, where we're taught about Jesus being human. Because sin is so heinous, so ugly, so terrible a thing that even God's beloved Son, His only begotten Son, had to suffer the agonies and tortures of the cross to make payment for it. And again, I I provided you with this quote from John Owen, this old Puritan writer. It's a very difficult quote. Let me try to read it with you. And he says, And this, and the this here is, is how terrible a thing sin is, And this appears most eminently in the cross of Christ. For God gave in him an instance or an example of his righteousness and of the desert or the deserving of sin, what sin deserves. Sin being imputed, in other words, Jesus was held responsible for our sin. Sin being imputed unto the only Son of God, he could not be spared. Now you'd say, well, Jesus is the only Son of God. Couldn't He be spared? Couldn't couldn't this be the one instance where God says, I'll overlook it because I love my only begotten Son? No, He could not be spared. uh, If He be made sin, says Owen, He must be made a curse. If He will take away our iniquities, he must make his soul an offering for sin and bear the punishment due unto them. Obedience in all duties will not do it. You might say to yourself, well, maybe Jesus could come to earth and obey the law of God perfectly and, and, and dot every I, cross every T. God's name would be glorified. Maybe that would work. No, no, that won't work either. Obedience in all duties will not do it. What about Jesus praying? Intercession and prayers will not do it, says Owen. Jesus could not come and, and plead for us Pray for us that our sins might be overlooked. No, that won't do it. Sin required another manner of expiation. Nothing but undergoing the wrath of God and the curse of the law and therein answering what the eternal justice of God required will effect that end or will accomplish that goal. Now, that's a, that's a sobering truth, congregation. And what a, what a, do you see your sin in that light? I wonder how many of us think of our sins that way. The sins that we commit. The things that we call mistakes or deficiencies or uh, an oversight. Right? And there are such things, I understand that. But I'm talking now about the sins that we commit that we know to be sins. 
They nailed Jesus to the cross. Those sins put him on that cross. Those sins are the hammer that drove those nails into his hands and into his feet. Think about sin that you may have committed, even recently. And now think that Christ had to go, he had to go to the cross. To satisfy the wrath of God for that sins. That's what it meant in verse 17 when it says to be a propitiation for the sins of the people. Now congregation, that, that's a disturbing thought. But I think it's also an encouraging thought. And does that not motivate you? In fact, is that not the strongest possible motivation that we ever can have to overcome sin in our life? Because you know what the devil does? He clubs you over the head with another message, right? You'll never be able to get over that sin. You'll never be able to conquer it. You're going to go to hell with that sin in your hand. And he clubs and beats the people of God with it. But congregation, you can answer back to the devil. You can say, Jesus has plucked that club from your hand, Satan. Because I'm no longer under death. I'm no longer under the curse. The captain of my salvation has gone before me. He's tasted death for me. And I take refuge in those wounds this evening. Congregation, let that be your thinking as you seek to overcome sin in your life. And that'll be a hundred times more effective than reading the law a million times. Oh, reading the law is wonderful. It's great. But congregation, the law cannot effect what a bleeding Savior on the cross can effect in your life. See what sin is. See where it put the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friend, if you're not a Christian this evening, Owen also says something about that. He says, if men will not learn what sin is here, they will learn it in hell. And now I press that upon you this evening. That if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you haven't taken refuge in those wounds, then know this. You'll learn the truth of this, what sin really is, either here or there. Put your trust in Christ without delay. And dear friends, in the third place, what death is. And may I speak to our elderly friends in this evening hour. Because you remember the old saying, right? That the old must die. The young can die. So I speak to you too today. But the old must die. Does the devil beat you over the head with that? Some of you know that maybe it's not so long. Maybe you have loved ones who are on their deathbed. Just a few steps yet. And they come to their end. And the devil loves to club us over the head with the terror of death. With the awful thought of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And knowing, and all your sins stare you in the face, and the devil brings back sins that maybe you'd long forgotten of. And he brings them back. He says, you're under the curse. You're under the curse. You're going to go lost forever. Well, you can answer him now, can't you? The author of Hebrews has given you the answer. He says, Satan, you don't have that club anymore. It's been neutralized. It's been taken away. Because the Lord Jesus Christ entered into death. He defeated it. So the devil can't use that argument anymore with you. It has no power. It has no power. 
Because you're not subject to death anymore. The guilt of your sins has been taken away. And you can, you can answer the question, dear friends. Remember the question that we saw in the psalm this evening. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Well, congregation, if you're behind the author and the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, then you can say, I will. Not because of what I've done, but because he went before me. Because he entered into death. Because he became a man in my place. And he became my mediator. And therefore, I can enter the house of God. I can ascend the hill of the Lord because I have a pure heart and clean hands. Well, that seems kind of presumptuous to say, doesn't it? But it's true. That if you're in Christ this evening, you can ascend the hill of the Lord. And you can be confident of that. And if tomorrow the news comes that you must die, you can face death in the face, full in the face. And may that be also for you on on Tuesday. To look that death full in the face without fear. Because you know who's gone before you. What a great day that will be to ascend into the hill of the Lord. Following the captain of our salvation. Congregation, may we rejoice in that fact this evening and all week. To the glory of God's name. Amen. Let's pray. O God. God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords. We rejoice in your salvation this evening. That you are the great leader, the great captain of our salvation. O Father, you're bringing many sons to glory. O Son, you're leading those sons and you've tasted sufferings and death on their behalf. And Spirit of God, we pray that you would write these things on our hearts this evening. And that we might go forth into the coming week, knowing that death holds no terror for us. That we're not under the curse any longer. That we can go forward with boldness and with courage. Rejoicing in Christ our Savior. Rejoicing even in his sufferings and his death. Which to the world, they cannot accept it. Which to the world looks like weakness. But to us it's salvation and strength. To the Greek it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved it is the wisdom and the power of God. The power of God to our salvation. Lord, I pray that you would remember all the Christians gathered here in our midst this evening and that you would bless them with this courage. Even those, Lord, who must face death, may they look death in the face without fear. And for those here, Lord, who may be non-Christians, who have not put their trust in you, O God, may tonight be the night that they leave behind that hopeless life, a life that cannot end well, a life that must end in death, and a life that is lived in the awful anticipation of being our own propitiation in hell forever. Lord, I pray that this evening they might take refuge in the wounds of Christ and find in them all manner of consolation. Lord, will you lift up the light of your countenance and let it shine upon us and hear us as we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.